You're listening to the Not Your Grandmother's Book Club podcast, where we read them so you don't have to. Like the show? Become a patron at patreon.com forward slash nygbc. You should write a book, Fry. People need to know about the can eat more. getting this book on UFOs. Did you know they're real? But there's a huge comic conspiracy to cover it up. Oh, that's just a paranoid fantasy. I want to be a book that you can pick me up, flip through my pages, make sure nobody drew wieners in me. Hello and welcome to the Not Your Grandmother's Book Club podcast. We read them so you don't have to, because we are the two people in this universe who it turns out actually enjoy Bogon poetry. <laughs> my name is Kevin, and I'm joined as always by my co-host Benedict, the official 2021 undefeated world champion of hoop and stick. Benedict, <laughs> what's something you got recently that made you happy? Ooh, um, a good question. Can you come back to me while I you know, do I know, that's yours? why I asked them. <laughs> Sure, sure, I'll do mine. Uh, if you're, I, I usually assume you're not going to be prepared, and I have to edit out the 45 seconds of silence while you go, mm, hum, how well, dare you, you put okay, that back? Okay, this is a surprise How dare question. you put that back in our notes? I will <laughs> I will murder you in your sleep. How dare you? It's on you? the record. If that ever happens, you know who's coming We're just going to be fighting over this for the rest <laughs> of the show. Uh, for me, uh, I've got, you know, Christmas time around, um, and, you know, I got presents from family and stuff, and uh, and some of it was good. Some of it was bad. Don't care about it. I'm going to talk about things I bought for myself. Okay. Uh, I bought myself, Benedict, as you are aware, a mm-hmm. robot mop, which yep. I adore, which <laughs> has a name now. Okay. <laughs> So that I can tell the electronic lady who lives in my house, who I will not say because she will make noise, uh, that that uh, that name, which is is Benedict, uh, mm-hmm. should go clean the house. Oh, uh, that was happen. okay. That's why you were texting me earlier. Okay, I was so confused. <laughs> and you were fully aware. Of what no, I, was I didn't. I forgot. About. I I thought you were talking about me in the third no. person. I was so confused. No. no, no, Benedict is my robot mop's name. And uh, Ben Nick cleans my house, and well, uh, and I love that. I love that. Just a little bit of delight. It's in more my day. use than I will ever be to you. <laughs> um, I'm gonna I'm gonna say my sad lamp that you bought me for Christmas <laughs> <laughs> because you were so. I, Kevin bought me a, a serotonin lamp for Christmas. I had to beg him for it. Essentially, oh, he was God. like, "What do you want for Christmas?" I was like, "A serotonin lamp." He was like. That is pathetic. Get a That's better present. That's a horrible present. gift. It's a horrible gift. <laughs> it's great. It brings me joy. It wakes oh. me up in the morning. It's fantastic. I love oh, it. Oh, you're such a sad, thoroughly, sad man. Thoroughly you're recommend. Such a sad, sad man. Thoroughly recommend a serotonin lamp. It's therapeutic. <laughs> so pathetic. Anyways, Benedict, you probably are aware, but but some of the people may not be. What exactly it is that we do here mm. on this program? And, and what's then I that? would say, Benedict, that this is the show. <laughs> Where we, unlike your protestations, go deep, 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 you dick. Benedict's trying to get me to get rid of that for the show. He's trying to make me get rid of that, and I refuse now. To plumb the depths depths of right-wing thought by reviewing a chapter from a work of conservative nonfiction and in between taking a look at other examples of the right doing their best to make America hate again. Benedict, start us off this week. 
Do you have a hot take for us? I do, yeah. And it's that everyone should cancel their gym memberships for 2022. What? And make spice mixes by hand instead. Because I did that today <laughs> and I am so sore. Honestly, I was like grinding up some what? cloves and... Because uh, it says what to do it in a coffee. What were you grinding with? Uh, with a mortar and pestle. And it's hard. Oh, God. Yeah. Well, use a coffee Use a coffee grinder. Okay, well, I don't have a coffee Get grinder. Get a $10 coffee grinder. I, I and, understand and... what one should do, but I needed mm-hmm. it today because I'm making... I'm using the spice mix i was making today you don't have one of those bullet mixers or anything like that either nope nothing i don't have any it's 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 totally on me but i've discovered a secret a secret workout is just doing mortar (laughs) and pestle for an hour and a half and then your arms won't be able to lift above your shoulder level so that's fine i gotta say we might as well cancel our fucking gym memberships with the way that the omicron variant is going right now i've I've already made the decision that I'm, I'm, you know, abandoning the gym for the foreseeable future, yeah. which luckily, because as I've said many times, I am better than all of you and have a Peloton in my home. Um, I can just uh, keep working out like that, which is great for me, but I won't be able to do any of my weightlifting for a while. But uh, I'm, you know, I live in St. Louis. I can't trust anyone here to be vaccinated, yeah. to be responsible, to wear a mask. So I'm just uh, going to be staying away from yeah. the gym for a while and, New- and trying not is- to probably about to be on the downswing yeah. again as we record so we new york leading the nation once more <laughs> in the uh, in the omicron variant well I, so. I i work with a bunch of 60 year old lawyers who don't get out much and aren't known for you know being in the best of, of uh, health or physical conditions so i'm yeah, thinking about them a little bit as i do that that's nice of you that's nice of you okay what's your hot take my hot take benedict anti-semitism is everywhere yes and mainly related to the fact that I am, I've been going to many, too many deep, uh, bad places recently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that I'm, I'm obsessed with finding actual physical copies of a lot of terrible yeah, materials. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I know. I know that's bad. I know I'm on a list now because of the things oh, that I have purchased. Um, I have a copy now uh, that I told you about a little while ago. You're probably on which... some recruitment lists as well. You were very angry when I bought a copy of the Turner Diaries. Yeah, I don't think that's great, but that's fine. Well, I, I bought it from a major retailer. I bought not from Amazon. They don't sell it. I know, right? I know, I know. But I found it from a... because. And you know what? I am also mad because if you were going to buy that piece of neo-Nazi trash propaganda... Uh, which I bought because I want to know, you know, what they're saying in there. What the, and it's very poorly written. You should have to at least be pretty sure your credit card information is going to be stolen if you go mm-hmm. to buy that online somewhere. It, you should not be able to buy it from somewhere that has secure checkout. That's that's how I feel about buying that. But I also recently I got two things I really love uh, that are also related to anti-Semitism because everything is. Um, I got a copy of the Blue Book. Uh, of the John Birch Society, which I'm really excited. It's on its way. It hasn't arrived yet. It's not an early copy like I'd really like. It's not like a 1950s or 60s copy. It's a a late 1970s copy, uh, but it is on the way. I'm excited to have that. Just sort of one of those weird collectibles I'm into. And I also got a copy of uh, Behold a Pale Horse by Bill Cooper, Mm. Um, the version of which I have is not the original because... Uh, later publishers have removed the chapter in which he reprinted in its entirety the anti-Semitic document, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. So, um, I love collecting this weird shit, and I know I'm on list because of it, but, like I'm saying, anti-Semitism is everywhere, and I shouldn't be able to find these things as easily online and get them as I can, and as I do, but I keep keep being able to, and that, for some reason, the fact that I want them... Um, and I, I get them 
shouldn't be possible. I shouldn't be able to get these things so easily. It really shouldn't be this fucking easy. No. But that's no, the way the yeah. world is. Yeah, that is. Anyway, Spanalix, let's move on a little bit. What is on your bookshelf this week? Uh, this week, uh, I haven't actually read it yet, but it's on, next on my, my to-read list. But I, my wife read it and said it's good. So A Flicker in the Dark is uh, it, it's a thriller. Uh, by <laughs> is Stacey it a thriller Lillian. in Manila? Yeah, not in Manila, but uh, oh. yeah, that that's uh, that's next on my bookshelf, next on my to read list. So uh, I won't won't reveal too much about it because a I don't know much about it, and b <laughs> it seems fun to not know. It's one of those where you should know less about it going in. I think so. Uh, yeah, that. What about you? For me, Benedict, uh, this is something that came up for us a little bit in the past, and I ordered a copy because I didn't have one anymore and read it. Uh, People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. Mm, um, yep. Just a good book. Just just a good book. Um, it, as it turns out, I mentioned, I think, a couple weeks ago that we might be doing, uh, might have been doing a book related to that. Some crazy lady who thinks she's debunking Howard Zinn. I got a copy of that lady's book, and it's just not good material for this oh, show. That's um, a shame. For one thing, she has probably sold like a hundred copies of that legitimately. So it feels like punching down in mm. a very big way. And when I looked into her background, she's just like some English professor who went off the deep end, got herself fired, and now just tries to do bullshit speaking engagements for right-wing nonsense. Yeah, that That's all sense. she really does. So, But uh, still, uh, People's History of the United States, still check that out. Howard Zinn, still a good yep. writer. Still, still worth reading. <laughs> so anyways, on to housekeeping a little bit. First off, uh, remember to follow us on all of the social medias at NYGBCPod on Twitter. Remember to rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, and uh, I should also mention that apparently there are other places you can rate and review now. Um, one of our, our patrons, or uh, actually one of our, our listeners, uh, told me recently that uh, Spotify now has reviews available on the platform. I don't know, a lot of people, I don't know where you listen to us on. I see sort of a breakdown um, on our podcast platform of where people are listening. Um, even if you're not listening to us on iTunes or on Stitcher or on Spotify or wherever those places are that you can review the show, please take the time. If you have an iPhone, log into iTunes, find the show, give us five stars, uh, go to Spotify, do it there as well. It helps other people find the show, uh, and we really love getting new listeners. Mm-hmm. And speaking of, we have some new patrons to Woo. welcome to the show this week. We, of course, uh, have a whole bunch of new activity, and I think uh, most of you came over uh, from uh, the uh, mention we got over on uh, Scathing Atheist. That was really great. It's nice to see all you people over here listening to the show. Uh, we sure have a good time. But I want to welcome all of our new patrons, who, of course, anytime we get a new patron, you also get inducted into our New World Spooky World Order. So this week, we're welcoming new patrons. Chris Palmer, welcome to the New World Spooky World Order. Bad Bible Stitches, you are now part of the New World Spooky World Order. <laughs> this is so long. <laughs> Ellie Bartlett. Welcome to New World Spooky World Order. Okay, for the last two. No, for the last two, we each have to do an impression of Glenn Beck doing it because that'll make it more fun. So Lisa, you, you can go first. You go first. Lisa, we'd like to one. welcome you to the New World Spooky World Order. <laughs> and Tarn Somerville Fletcher. You are now part of our New World Spooky World Order. <laughs> <laughs> you bad this, Benedict. You're really bad this. <laughs> Thank you all yeah. for joining. 
I think in the future, if we have a bunch at one time, we can't uh, we can't do that that way. We have to just list them and then uh, and then induct them all. Whatever. But I also fun. we have some other additions to the Spooky World New World Order this week, including, of course, Brentley TV, who is always out there promoting the show. We love you, Brentley, and he's also the person who told me uh, that Spotify now has ratings. So Brentley TV on Twitter, you are now part of the New World Spooky World Order. So is Stefan at Old School Six Seven Zero Two. On Twitter, Becky Scott Fairley, you are now part of the Spooky World New World Order for agreeing with me that doing things alone is great. And I should mention, sure. part of the reason why we have all this this week is we haven't recorded in two and a half weeks. Yep. So a bunch of stuff happened in the meantime. I'm trying to get this all done. All of you who I've just mentioned, all our patrons, all our great listeners, you are now part of our New World Spooky World Order. And if you would also like to join the Spooky World New World Order, you can tweet or post about the show on social media, recommending it to others, and send me a screenshot or tag us. Leave us a five-star review wherever you can and drop me a screenshot to let me know. Become a patron. That automatically gets you in. And, you know, just get my attention with something I really like, and I'll, I'll put you in the New World Spooky World Order. I don't mind. That out of the way, Benedict, a handful of updates before we actually get mm. into the show this week. First off. This show two. should be seven hours long. Jesus Christ. I'm aware, but we haven't recorded in two weeks. I know, but fault. So it's not my fault. You were, I was here. <laughs> you weren't. Uh, we have two patron-only bonuses coming this month in January. As I have mentioned, we're going to be finishing off, finally, our review of None Dare Call It Conspiracy, the patron-only review that we've been doing. Really excited for that to finally be done. Uh, a couple other things um, related to, to what we've been talking about. First off, uh, William F. Buckley and the John Birch Society. Just some, I, you know, been doing my reading, been tracking some stuff down, and I managed to find a few more connections. Uh, Roger Milliken, he was a John Birch Society member and one of National Review's biggest funders in its early days. Always like to point out those points of connection. Uh, and then Willie Schlam and Medford Evans are two people who wrote both for the John Birch Society magazine, American Opinion and National Review. I just want to, I hate that, that myth that we keep hearing that uh, Buckley pushed the John Birch Society out of the conservative movement when really they were just right there with him. They are just right there with him. And also, Bennett, this week there's been some some movement from our cast of characters, some some stuff that's happened in the world with people who we are uh, closely uh, uh, acquainted with through the Mm -hmm. show. Madison Cawthorn, of course, the other day tweeting that our founding fathers wouldn't recognize the America we live in today. They'd be horrified, and rightfully so. I... I love that so much. I love that so much because everyone pointed out that, yes, they would be horrified, but not so rightfully so. Not so rightfully so. And then, of course, the big news from yesterday as we record, or maybe two days ago now, Marjorie Taylor Greene permanently banned from Twitter. Mm, Um, Yep. You know, so long. Thanks for all the fish, Marjorie. Um, Really sad to see. No, we're not. No, we're not. This is just, it, it was going to come at some point. Because she she really believes the shit that she says. So she's not going to stop because she really is as crazy as she pretends to be. And now I, I just have to predict that she's just going to go on to Parler or Getter or all those platforms. And she's just going to be more openly insane than ever before. That's all I can I can predict about it. Yeah, she's uh, well, she still has her she, she still has her um, her house account, right, is the. Well, I I think she's likely to be banned from that. That one's likely to be banned as well within, let's say, a month. As soon as she demands that whatever intern runs that gives her the password and starts (laughs) posting through it as well, which will be in violation of Twitter's um, 
policy about avoiding a ban through different accounts and things. Well, and also I think would be uh, would well, I I think there would be something um about personal posting personal stuff on a house account as well. Because I don't yeah, think they're don't... supposed to do that. That's why they have two different accounts a lot yeah. of the time. Because one's for when they're in Washington in an official mm-hmm. capacity, and one's for when they're not. So yes. But have we ever known Marjo to, to follow any rules? Care yeah. about the rules? To follow the rules? No, I don't think so. But with all that out of our way, Benedict, we continue with our book review of God and Man at Yale, The Superstitions of Academic Freedom by William Frank Buckley Jr., a sentient five-gallon bucket of oppositional defiance disorder. Benedict, what did we read this week? Well, Kevin, this week we read the first half of Chapter 4, The Superstitions of Academic Freedom, in which Buckley accidentally stumbles on an internally consistent point, (laughs) I think. Well, surrounded by a whole bunch of oh, inconsistent yeah. ones. No, but I think there's a lot was, of internal was, inconsistency. Here. I think yes. this is the meatiest chapter so far in oh, terms sure. of like what well, Buckley it, actually believes and him putting forward any kind of argument. And it's also one of those ones that you know the theme of this book has for us has been how the fuck is this considered a classic by these people? Mm-hmm. It's one that for me stands out the most as oh they no but none of them have ever read this book. There's no way any of them have ever read this book and continued to make the arguments that they make in public yeah. or, you know, or, or the way, why would you present this as a classic if he's saying the quiet part out loud? The quiet part being you don't actually believe in ac- academic freedom. Um, it just doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any goddamn sense. No. So as you said, this is chapter four. Uh, Benedict, do you have an alternate chapter title? I do. It's freedom is slavery. No liberty. No academic. No what? <laughs> very good. Very good. <laughs> Mine is when you believe in things that you don't understand. <laughs> That's good. But in a better singing voice. Yeah. But in a better singing voice. Fair enough. Uh, and so this chapter, Benedict, it starts. Why does quote, he always start with a dumb anecdote? I don't, I like don't it, know. he really buries his points under. I know this guy who was at Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're gonna talk about this guy. We're gonna talk about okay, this guy right. for a second. So he begins this chapter saying, "Quote." On April 26, 1949, Mr. Frank B. Ober, a Baltimore attorney and a graduate of the Harvard Law School, sat down and wrote a letter to President Conant of his alma mater. Mr. Ober was sore. He had been working as chairman of a Maryland commission charged with drafting laws to cope with communist influences in that state. A Harvard professor had come down to Baltimore to address a rally sponsored by the Progressive Party and designed both to excite opposition to the anti-communist laws and to solicit funds with which to combat them. Mr. Ober was also upset at the fact that another Harvard professor, Harlow Shapley, had just a month before chaired the communist-inspired, Russian-dominated cultural and scientific conference for world peace at the Waldorf Astoria. He told Mr. Conant, in a letter not intended for publication, and manifestly inadequate as well-rounded statement of his position that he could no longer in good conscience contribute money to the university that harbored within its halls faculty members who were giving aid and assistance to agents of a foreign hostile power which is engaged in efforts to subvert this country by conspiratorial methods. That is a long-winded, as you mentioned, bullshit story that did not need to be included in this chapter at all to say that uh, there is a guy in Baltimore who was mad at Harvard because they uh, allowed progressives to exist. That's that's what those those yeah, two paragraphs I just read said. But the fun part about this for me, Benedict, as you are always aware, is digging into the bullshit behind all of this. So I looked into Mr. Frank B. Ober. One of the places I looked, I dug into uh, a database. Sounds like a joke name, by the way. It, it does, doesn't it? It's yeah. almost like, uh, see more butts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Fun stuff. But 
Um, I looked into uh, one of the academic uh, and uh, you know legal uh, databases that we use at Lawyers called Hein Online. It's where you can find a lot of law review articles. Won't be able to read most of them unless you have a login, but uh, you can look and see what's in there. Um, and I found this guy, he actually wrote a good amount of law review articles back in the uh, 1950s and 1960s. That's that um, all good. Nobody seemed to care about them because they aren't particularly cited much. But, for example, Benedict, a few of his law review articles... Communism versus the Constitution, the power to protect our free institutions. Yep, that sounds right. Another one. Communism and the Court, an examination mm. of recent developments. I'm seeing Published a in here. 1958. This guy was a big timer. And mm. then I dug into him a little more, and I found a hearing in 1969 about a proposed law called the Academic Freedom Protective Act of 1969. Oh, so this guy's big into academic freedom then. Well, Benedict, it's kind of the opposite. Yeah, as I you know. would I was as being you sarcastic. would suspect. Yeah, no, he's not exactly into academic freedom so much as he's into getting rid of it. Yep. Um, so this law, the proposed Academic Freedom Protective Act, as well, it was it was more about all these dumb hippies on campus. We need to do something about stopping mm. them. That's really what this act was kind of yep. about. Um, and so this guy wrote a proposed bill that would basically let them you know arrest any student who did a sit-in arrest yeah yeah basically allow them to arrest uh, under sort of you know national defense bullshit you know that sort of insurrectiony type stuff that we always hear about sort of that kind of stuff it would have allowed them to arrest students for doing basically for doing sit-ins uh it would have allowed that sort of stuff and that so this guy he did a it didn't pass thank christ but uh, also, the only other fun part I found out about that was during the hearing, because I was reading the, the um, transcript of the hearing, um, uh, whoever was running, I think it was Senator Dodd, whoever was running the hearing had to step out and had to go do something. Um, and so the senator who came in to chair the hearing after that guy left, Strom Thurmond, that's who yep, came in. That makes sense. That's yep, who yep, you'd yep, expect. Yep, yep, no, it's yep, always the, the yep. characters you would expect. So anyways... What we're going to hear a lot about for the beginning part of this chapter that is just pointless, does not fucking matter, is about this letter and how this letter that Frank B. Ober sent to Harvard University, well, they addressed it, but they weren't fair about it. Yeah, They're- it's – it. well, it, <laughs> this first bit of the chapter is extremely dull, honestly. I mean, I, I think what you just went into is, is important and interesting, like him citing that person, but – the it, it's essentially just like well i counted the words yes no he literally did he literally did he counted the words on the side of ober and he counted the words that the harvard uh people did opposing ober's little letter in like some harvard alumni magazine thing and he said and so the total count 9350 words versus 2600 words he actually counted the words. Yeah, and he, he and then he ends Do, that with and w- once six emperor tyrannus. Doesn't ad- yeah, I, that was wild. <laughs> six emperor tyrannus. Um, <laughs> he doesn't address the quality of the argument in any way no, on either side, or really not say what either of them said. Like, no, it's not reprinted in any way. Right. But as you say, then ends with. And, like, it's not like he ends with like I think this should happen. He ends with the line before six emperor tyrannus is. That's a, it. Yeah, literally. The just, total yeah, word just, count. He's just p- the word count and then who, who was on which side of the argument. You yeah. Know, and then six, 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 six It makes no sense. It makes no goddamn sense. sense. That's what John Wilkes Booth said after assassinating <laughs> Abraham Lincoln. 
yeah, yeah which it's, is the it's... same as getting a quarter of the words in your defense versus the opposition yeah kind of fucking crazy man kind of fucking crazy but also there's a little bit in this section insane (laughs) there's a little bit in this section of him trying to compete with harvard for oh eat yale we obviously have worse crazy people than harvard's crazy people like he does point out oh well harvard can say they have this guy but at yale we have this guy that i hate yeah a little bit of that bullshit you know college yeah i I did enjoy that a little bit that that's another funny thing where um it's it's literally just like, you know, I can't cite any examples about my university <laughs> because <laughs> I haven't done the research. Oh. So here's oh, a different Benedict. university. <laughs> this whole portion we read today is I don't have any real examples. So here's something that happened somewhere else or a hypothetical I'm completely making up and didn't happen. <laughs> they in love the world. a hypothetical. Buckley Good loves a God. hypothetical. Loves a hypothetical because you can't argue his points well, based on reality. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you just can't. But part of this that, that uh, stuck out to me is he, this whole argument comes down to they. There's a they out there. And they are, in this case, the people at Harvard who were pointing out how wrong this dipshit anti-communist wacko, probably John Burt Society member, although I didn't, couldn't, couldn't find any direct connections there, was, you know, he's on one side and they, the university, they. are on the other. Yeah. And he starts after that whole thing with another paragraph that says, quote, I have taken the time to describe the Ober controversy because it indicates to me the power of the machine and the techniques that are so readily available to the academic liberals for immediate use against anyone meddlesome enough to find fault with existing policy. And that is very reminiscent of what we hear today about how they, big academics, they. Because yeah. remember, it's, all, it's always a they. It always comes back to a they. Yeah. Because they don't need to specify. They can specify some specific people they hate, right? You hear plenty of them screaming about, uh, you know, uh, Bill Gates and his vaccines, his evil vaccines. They're putting microchips in you. He's part of the they, but he's just one small part of a larger amorphous they, whether it be Alex Jones's globalists or Marjorie, Taylor's, Marjorie Taylor Greene's Jews, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> whoever it is that you hate at this specific moment, it's part of that bigger they. Yeah, and it, it's uh, well, the the insiders thing is the big one, isn't it? It's like some someone who knows something you don't know, or right. or controls your life in a way that you don't even realize because you you don't have the inside view of what they're doing. Right, and it's also a way to excuse the fact that you keep oh, so much of what we read and so much of what is going to be in this chapter is excusing why your side's arguments lose. It can't possibly be the fact that. You know, you're just wrong and people don't agree with you and most people hate you because you're William F. Buckley and you're just annoying as shit. It can't possibly be that. It's actually that this large institution is preventing you from getting your arguments out because they're only giving you 2,600 words versus their 9,000 words. That's why it's happening. It doesn't have anything to do with you just being a a major dick. Really, uh, you know, doing away with the idea of the laconic response here, Buckley, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, you know, you know the original laconic response. I'm asking no. you. You don't know. Okay, no. so uh, it's, 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 here's a fun ancient Greece story that may be apocryphal. Probably is apocryphal. Yeah, but so much is. They, 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 someone sent a message to the Spartans. I think it was the Persians. Um, sent a message to the Spartans saying, "If we come to your territory, oh, we so, will take, yeah, okay, and, yeah. And, and, yes, and we, we will I have burn, seen the movie 300. We will burn yes. your lands. <laughs> yeah, but it's not from that. It's from ancient Greek." And then the, no, the, no, Benedict, the, it's from the movie. I've seen the, the movie. The Spartans <laughs> responded with the one word, if. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. 
Great line. Very good. Great. Oh, yeah. Gerard Butler. Gerard yeah. Butler. So good. Exactly. Just so but good. It, was, it was written. It wasn't <laughs> spoken. And it wasn't by Gerard Butler. Right. By Gerard Butler. Yes. I know. I've seen the movie. <laughs> I think he was producer, too. Uh, yeah. But so uh, he continues this chapter saying, quote, here, as with an increasing number of issues that confront the Democratic By community... By the way, sorry, that is just, that's such a, like, classic example of this show. Me being like, <laughs> have you heard this ancient Greek reference? And you being like, yeah, I saw it in a comic book. Culture is culture, Benedict. Doesn't matter where you get it from. That's, to, to new listeners, that's it. That's me being like, well, I read it in the original Greek, and you being like, well, comic books rule, man. called... <laughs> translations uh, here is with an increasing number of the issues that confront the democratic community the liberals have it without so much as a gesture of obeisance to the toleration and open-mindedness that so they so ostentatiously enshrine that there is a right side and a wrong side and benedict that just translates to so much for the tolerant left. Yeah, That's all that is right literally there. Literally, exactly that. And also, I mean, I think, that, you know, I, I was thinking about this more generally, and I think the, and, and where this book fails, which is a lot, um, and I think the, the original sin of the book in that sense is just an assumption that he's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and just never having to engage with the fact that he might be wrong. Right. About well, anything. Have we, have we had any author who's done that? I don't... Well, I mean, on a serious level, not on a joking, like, oh, these guys all think they're right, blah, blah. On a serious level, have any of them done anything beyond assume that everything they believe is correct no, and but proceed at least, from there? at least they kind of... The other books are kind of different because they assume what they believe is correct and then they tell you what they believe. Sure. Whereas Buckley doesn't even tell you what he believes. He just tells you what should change as a result of his beliefs. Because right. he, he told us, right, many times he, he believes in this individualism that he has never bothered to define. Yeah, And is exactly. just an amorphous concept that changes to fit whatever the particular exactly. paragraph he's writing is. So Buckley, um, Buckley jumps straight to the, the, what he believes should be the consequences of, of his obviously correct beliefs without ever defining them. Whereas at least Glenn Beck is like, hey, here's what I believe about communism. For better or for worse, like, that's, that's what Glenn Beck sets out his stall to do. Yeah, I mean, you got to give him at least that tiny bit of credit there. It's not, it's not much credit, but a little bit of credit there. Yeah. But Buckley continues skipping down a little bit, and this basically is just again him explaining away his failure and trying to make himself into a martyr, where he says, "Quote: For similar reasons, it is not unlikely that this book, upon its appearance, will be branded as the product of an aberrant who takes the wrong side, i.e., the side that disagrees with the liberals. I expect to be Yale's ober." Sure. Which, the saddest part about that, Benedict, is he's not because nobody gave a fuck when this book came out. Well, it's even his own university, Benedict. they didn't bother to deal with this fucking book because nobody cared about this fucking book. No. Oh, it's just so sad. It's it's that desperate attempt to create a martyrdom for yourself among conservatives. We see so much. Every one of them wants to be a Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's kicked off Twitter. She has gone in a, a spree of declaring herself a martyr. Oh, yeah. And that Twitter is only coming after her because they are afraid of her. That's yeah. what it's all about. And it goes back to my little joke about it being oppositional defiance disorder this week. It very much is defining yourself or defining your accomplishments, rather, or, uh, you know, finding evidence of your, your righteousness mm-hmm. in opposition from people you hate. Yep. Something along those lines, all these people do that. They all absolutely. Well, I think everyone does that to an extent, honestly. I mean, you, you saw that in, uh, well, I, I, it depends, but you, 
I think that's a majoritarian position now, at least. Um, mm. to I just don't to, see it as well, explicitly and as often oh, from anybody on. except for the far right. Resist Twitter? No, I, 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 I think you're wrong I, about that. I, I, I think that's different. I think no, that's it's different not. because what I the, it's the phenomenon itself as oppositional to no, to Trump. no, 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 no. The phenomenon I'm describing is explicitly these people saying I am correct because these people say I'm wrong because these people are attacking me explicitly. And I will point to Alex Jones, as usual, as the person who will just say, look at the people who are attacking me. That's how you know I'm right. Mm. It's more explicit than that sort of resist mentality. You're no, yeah, but well, that I sort think, of boomer uh, well, liberal I, I think Twitter you've, thing. You've described two different things because op- oppositional defining yourself in opposition. I, I think is they are related concepts. That, that I think they does. are related concepts, but I'm, I'm pointing to a more specific phenomenon. I think okay. I've seen. Yeah, fine. Anyways, we get back to uh, more terrible overlong footnotes, yep. as this book should be called. And don't we get some of the worst footnotes we have ever seen? I don't read the footnotes, Good to be honest God. with you. <laughs> I went to law school, so I read footnotes. And well, I normally do, but I've, I, I've conditioned myself not to read the yeah. footnotes for this one. Well, I mean, at some point, I don't remember what page it's on, but some point in this chapter, we get a footnote that is literally half the page. Yeah. And it's like, okay, if, if you have a footnote that ends up being half the page... It should have just been on the page. Yeah. If it was then important enough to just make it onto the page, if that's a single footnote that took up that much space. It's also not it a reference. Page. It's not like a, no. a, 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 a in his book he says this. It's, a, no, it's just it's an just auxiliary that sort of commentary point. style. Yeah. That commentary footnote of like, uh, I don't need, this isn't part of my main thrust, but I want to put it in there because I think this was an interesting thought. Put it it's in like, the appendix or put sure. it in the chapter. Sure. Either one. Pick one. Pick one. Oh, and so the footnote that he has on this page that I just found glorious is where he says, quote, The reader is no doubt weary of seeing quotation marks around academic freedom. Hereafter, I shall mostly dispose with them, except occasionally, so that they may serve as a reminder that I am at sword's point with the common usage of the term, as I shall explain later. Okay. And it's, he hadn't learned yet that he didn't need to try and make excuses for his douchebaggery that he could just be a confident idiot he could just do that i think that's a lot of what we've seen in this book because remember he's 25 i think when he wrote this yeah he hadn't learned those lessons yet about just being a confident asshole and not needing to make excuses for your obvious poor writing so yeah it's just a good thing for him yeah it's much better now but the next thing he jumps to is this uh, little bullshit argument that happened apparently on the yale campus this time where uh, the, I don't remember, was it the dean of Yale had said something in an address that he wouldn't hire any open communists. Of course, this is 1950. I'm, I'm not shocked by that. Yeah. But I mean, again, it's a point against the entire argument of this book that Yale is just loving all the communists. It's so he doesn't seem to connect those two things in his mind. But what he does point out is that one of the professors, Professor Kirkland, um, wrote a like an op-ed about how stupid it was for the dean to, to say that. That's that's all it is. Yeah. So it yeah, it's it's really nothing. Yeah, it just goes back to the old communist oath panic thing. And I think the best thing about oaths you'll ever see is, you know, Joseph Heller in Catch Twenty Two. The I mean, like that's the ridiculousness of the oath bullshit. I think oaths are just fucking stupid. But we get to our first subsection of this chapter, which is number one the teacher's qualifications. And he has numbered his subsections this time for what reason, I don't know, but uh, who needs consistent formatting? Well, yeah, sure. I wish Uh, he'd done it for all of them. But looking at this headline and reading the first paragraph of it, my thought was, 
is he about to argue against having qualified teachers? Yeah. Because that was my assumption right off the bat. Like, that's that's definitely what I thought was going to happen. Well, basically, I mean, this this whole bit, and I do consider it all a bit, honestly, is um, him being like, well, you say that you want this, but do you really? <laughs> and it, it, it's, it's another kind of, it, it's a more academic ad absurdum argument than we get from some of the others, but a yeah. lot of this is is a bit silly but it is at least an internally consistent point which is i I think we've we've been somewhat lacking so far in the chapter yeah i mean he sort of bypasses saying of course everyone agrees they need to have proper academic qualifications fine but then he goes on to say that apparently this thing he's including under qualifications that he's concerned about is about their personal convictions Mm -hmm. of the professors who are being considered and he says quote Professor Kirkland does not believe that academic freedom ought to protect the pedant, the dilettante, or the exhibitionist. Yet many colleges that operate on a philosophy of academic freedom almost identical to Professor Kirkland's nevertheless retain an occasional pedant, dilettante, or exhibitionist. On the negative side, there is real unanimity where the scholar-applicant's convictions are concerned. Incessantly quoted on behalf of laissez-faire education is a passage from the inaugural address of President Charles W. Eliot of Harvard who said... A university must, above all, be free. The winnowing breeze of freedom must blow through all its chambers. The corporation demands of all its teachers that they be grave, reverent, and high-minded, but it leaves them, like their pupils, free. (laughs) And so what he's talking about here is really just the fact, you know, he's arguing with himself and nobody else really about what freedom means in the context of academic freedom. And he's pointing out, I think probably correctly, that it means in general that they're not going to inquire into the sort of personal convictions of staff and professors and all those people. Generally, seems to be the case that that's not what they're going to do. But his argument is, well, they don't actually believe that because the dean said that he won't allow communists on campus. Well, it's um, it's very silly. <laughs> all, all of this is very silly. Like This first point, this first bullet point, or not bullet point, but subsection... Is is just like well? Here's what are they... you a good old are you a good old chap? <laughs> so yeah, he's just sort of setting out in this first subsection. His his I God I cannot pronounce subsection. Uh, it's gonna annoy me to the day I die. Uh, but he's sort of just pointing out here that this is what he presents as what they the people who are in favor of academic freedom. I, I didn't even mention though he said that he wasn't going to bother to define what academic freedom means, and then he, he doesn't, then he he spent doesn't two define pages. any of his terms. Well, but he didn't spend two pages laying out this whole, here's a bunch of block quotes from people talking about academic freedom, right? Mm-hmm. But then we get to yeah, that's the second subsection, which is, yeah. does Yale practice academic freedom? And I think, although it's bullshit, I think this is his best point in the book really? so far. I thought this yeah. was... Uh, I, I see where it's internally consistent. It's not externally consistent. No, no, I agree. I agree. But but in terms of his internal consistency, the argument platforming fascists should be the same as platforming communists by his terms and definitions. This is a sure. point that he has Because he has not bothered to deal with the paradox of tolerance or anything like that. No, exactly. But he yeah, starts yeah. his section off with this quote, which I think, think about this in the context of how it applies, again, to his progeny, the people who think that this book is so great but have never actually read it, where he says, quote, I believe it to be an indisputable fact that most colleges and universities, and certainly Yale, the protests and pretensions of their educators and theorists notwithstanding, do not practice, cannot practice, and cannot even believe what they say about education and academic freedom. 
I am not saying that they do not utilize the rationale of academic freedom to obtain license when and where they desire it. This they most certainly do, for their policy is one of expedience. That's so in for, to to use ten words where Buckley has used a thousand <laughs> by his own terms. I'm going to say what he means is colleges hide behind the veil of academic freedom, right, to do what they want to do. And I will say that is exactly what shitheads who want to bring Richard Spencer to their college campus do. Hide behind well, it, fucking funny. academic freedom. It, it's funny how the argument has flipped, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That, uh, that was that was a point I noted, is that now it's very much the opposite of like, oh, every every voice should be allowed. That's the that's very much the the far right position is sure. you have to listen to us in the name of academic freedom. Which is really just the fact that society has moved on from their archaic anti Semitism and racism and all the fucking mm-hmm. bullshit that they say. And, you know, people who who are no longer acceptable because they're fucking monsters have to find some way to argue. And and I think plenty of these people on that side will use the academic freedom argument. That's what we hear all the damn time because they recognize that back in the 60s at Berkeley and at places where, uh, you know, other ideologies that weren't in the mainstream, um, they use the academic freedom argument effectively to get their their ideas onto campus and to get the ability to advocate and uh, do all these great things. Um, and it worked then, and they're like, why Why isn't it working for me now? Is it because mm-hmm. people know I'm a Nazi? And yes, it's because yes, we know that they're Nazis, why. right? It's just so, it's such bullshit when on one side, you have the free speech movement of Berkeley back in the 60s, um, and Mario Savio, who gave the amazing throw your bodies upon the gears speech, in favor of, for the most part, civil rights was what a lot of yep. these things were about. This was about student organizations who were being blocked from advocating for student for civil rights on campus in Berkeley. That was what spawned the free speech movement, the FSM. We, we, as a graduate of UC Berkeley, that's something we care deeply about. And these fuckwits think that their argument is the same because in form it may look the same, even though in function mm-hmm. they're arguing against good things. It's not the same. Yep. It's not the same. Nope. But then he starts going through department by department, basically. Yeah, the English one is very weird. Yeah, isn't it? Because he says, quote, Let us begin with the field of English literature and poetry, a field about which controversy, controversy is largely confined to the academic world itself. It is naturally an area in which values are heavily involved, and since this entire discussion deals with value inculcation in schools, comes naturally to mind. I don't know where values are involved in English. I, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> well, I, I think he means value judgments. Sure, maybe. That's not the way of I like, tended uh, to of take of someone's, it. Of someone's, someone's worth. Yeah, I, I didn't tend to take it that way because what he goes on about is he talks about this one poet. <laughs> he seems to really have a bugaboo for this shitty poet named Joyce Kilmer. Um, and this is a guy who's, I think his most famous poem when I looked him up was called trees that's this guy's most famous poem do you know anything about this guy benedict uh he was a i think he was a catholic um catholic poet who i think died in the war yeah he he died Um, in world war one uh at the second battle of marne yeah yeah but but like a reasonably i think famous catholic poet at the time not not for the quality of his poetry but i think um, he was very prolific was one of the things i read about him Yeah. <laughs> but yes, right. basically a lot of people have made fun of his poetry for being just very simplistic, 
you know, basic bad poetry. It well, it is, but also at the same time, that doesn't mean it shouldn't be studied. Sure. Yeah. Because because any any example can be an example of a of a negative or an, you know, a, a, and I think if if someone were able to justify why it's why he's underappreciated and present a compelling argument about that then there's no reason why that shouldn't be allowed in an English department. I mean, that's that's kind of the the point sure. is, is to find interesting things to say about. I mean, you know, I studied medieval poetry. <laughs> there's only so many medieval poems that still exist, and there are there's only so many things you can say about it unless you find something new and interesting to say. And I don't care what a bunch of dicks said when they met each other on a road. I really don't care. Mm. Don't care. You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking I do about. Not. Just a Canterbury Tales joke. So, I know. I, well, obviously, great. I didn't study English all, poetry. Oh, well, go fuck yourself. But his argument here is, well, if a professor was a fan of Joyce Kilmer, then Yale wouldn't hire that professor. And again, because he doesn't have any real-world fucking examples, this is just mm. a hypothetical. He does not yeah. have an example of a professor who really loved Joyce Kilmer and wanted but to also, teach him and wasn't hired. The, the the thing is also he's like oh isn't this ridiculous also remember <laughs> only one person used to like bach <laughs> so yeah exactly exactly what you've said might happen did happen with bach which you may think bach is a different class of genius to kilmer how dare you pronounce that correctly by the way how dare you <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, um, but it, th- he precisely negates his point by being like, "Hey, remember when this super popular thing used to be unpopular?" <laughs> he's really Which just no. Weird. He's really just trying to pull the. Oh, I I liked it before it was cool. He's hoping Joyce Kilmer becomes a real thing. So he'd be like, oh, I saw Joyce Kilmer perform in uh, <laughs> in San Francisco with only ten people in the crowd. That's, that's what he that's, wants to yeah. do. That's in the same paragraph, though. It's not even, like, separated by a page. You don't even have to turn the page to see that. I know. It's in the same paragraph. But then he moves on from English after his, again, imaginary hypothetical that will not and has not happened. Um, and he moves on to sociology, where he says, quote, I should be interested to know how long a person who revealed himself as a racist, who lectured about the anthropological superiority of the Aryan, would last at Yale. My prediction is that the next full moon would see him looking elsewhere for a job. Yale looks upon anti-Semitic, anti-Negroid prejudices as false values. Though, of course, they are value judgments just the same, and have been upheld by various scholars not only in the past, but in the present day as well. But they are value judgments which are not going to be defended in any Yale classroom. So, knowing what we know about Buckley, uh, and knowing what we know about his position on the Civil Rights Act and the Civil Rights Era, and knowing what we know about his position on, you know, fascism and his general support for it, um, that paragraph becomes much more troubling. Especially, again, I will ask you to think about it in the context of the modern-day followers of Buckley who think this book is so great who do want professors who will talk about the anthropological superiorities of the white people. It's, mm. Mm, you're arguing cross purposes mm. here. Yeah, it's uh, not brilliant. It's a little bit disturbing. And then he talks about, well, would Yale hire someone who scorned democracy? We're a republic, not a democracy. And n- n- probably not, I would imagine. It probably wouldn't like someone. Who, but again, it's just hypotheticals. All he has is hypotheticals. And he says, oh, if someone was in favor of totalitarianism or fascism, they'd have to go work elsewhere. Yale just wouldn't hire him. Yeah, it's also like, 
Yale is a very competitive place to get hired. Sure. I think is is probably the point. So if you're somebody who's so outside, they might ha- if if they were like a world leading academic who had a kooky theory about something, yeah. maybe they would hire them. Sure. Maybe they would hire them. Also, they have not hired any communists. <laughs> like they just haven't. That's right. So, Richard Wolf teaches at Harvard. Doesn't yeah. he? Or is he at Cornell? I don't remember where Richard Wolf is. I don't know. What I, but but at the point that Buckley is writing, his definition of a communist is certainly not most people's definition. Well, no. it might be most people at the times, but if you look back and said how many of these professors were communist oh, professors, yeah. zero. Zero were communists. And that, so that is the, something... The point is moot. It, it's very much something that you and I have... You, we have this problem. Whenever we are talking about these, these books that we do, we forget that their definitions in no way resemble the reality of what these things are, yeah. especially you know, when we get into like the John, and I will say there is virtually no difference between the John Birch Society definition of communism, which is everything, and the William F. Buckley definition of communism, which is everything. There's no, there's no daylight between those two, but we keep forgetting because we try to live in the real world that oh, communism means a thing and socialism means a thing, and all these words have various definitions. There are various levels of them. There are various spect- places upon the spectrum where they may exist, but to him. Everything to the left of this laissez-faire communism, or laissez-faire capitalism that he's in favor of, is communism. And that's it. End of story. And it's just ridiculous. It's a ridiculous argument. Mm-hmm. So the last thing I think he talks about before we get to the next subsection is this guy, Jerome Davis, uh, who in 1937, Yale refused to reappoint at the Divinity School. Um, and I think Buckley agrees that it was because he was a critic of capitalism and that the university didn't want that there. And I think that's part of his argument here for why the university doesn't actually yeah. believe in this academic so, freedom. Yeah, he, he points to a place where it hasn't happened, So, which I, I think is a perfectly legitimate thing to do. I sh- sh- but again, it cuts against his argument that Yale is this communist paradise. No, it it does, it does. So it's, it's lacking consistent in the argument, but lacks it, it, it lacks consistency. It's internally in. consistent, but not internally consistent. <laughs> you know yeah, what I'm exactly. Saying? It's internally internally consistent. It's internally consistent in terms of this argument, but lacks the consistency compared to other chapters. Right, right. And he gets back to the whole thing with Professor, uh, what was his name, Kirkland, who was arguing against this boycott of communist teachers that the dean was talking about, President Seymour, rather, not the dean, President Seymour, who said he would not uh-huh. knowingly hire a communist to the teaching faculty. And I think part of, because I went and looked into to Kirkland a little bit, he was a very interesting guy, actually, and a very important figure, and he did a lot of great stuff. Um, he seems to have been concerned then, as is much still the case now, that people who are screaming no communists will just label everything they don't like communists, and then they can ban those things as communism, which, as we have seen, is pretty much what happens throughout history and has been the case. But he ends off this subsection just pointing out, well... Yale, um, he said he won't hire any communists, so it's not actually that they believe in academic freedom. Because if they believed in academic freedom, Yale would hire communists. But they do have limits, and so my argument isn't that crazy. I just want those limits to be much narrower, is basically his argument to end this portion of the chapter. Yeah, I want it to be more agreeing with me. And I'll read where he Please says that. He says, he says, quote, Now these limits are very wide indeed, and they are limits prescribed by expediency, not by principle. My task becomes then not so much to argue that limits should be imposed, but that existing limits should be narrowed. This is what he says. So, I mean, 
it's honest at least. It's yeah. I, I think I, I get what you're saying where there is a level of of uh, relation to reality in this argument. I don't know if I want to call it consistency so much. But there is a level of relationship to reality where he is correct that the the president of the university said he wouldn't hire a communist. Sure. So he just wants that to be narrowed to not hiring anyone who isn't a laissez-faire capitalist. Who I accuse of being Exactly. Yeah. And it goes back to that, well, now we're just getting into the area of value judgments, and we all agree that Buckley's a fucking nut job, and nobody wants his bullshit fucking nonsense. So the next subsection, truth and value, begins with a quote, I think? I can't tell. I think so, yeah. He doesn't I, attribute it. Yeah, it's not attributed to anything, but it's set off Which like a Which is maybe a comment on what truth is. Sure, sure how it we could find be. Truth. But the quote, maybe not quote, is, quote, Truth is probably not apprehendable. Since it is not, it is folly to try and indoctrinate the student in any specific formula. Rather, the teaching community must be left, to, left free to approach truth as best it can. And then he's very postmodern. Very postmodern. He says about that. This statement, however else expressed, features prominently in the platform of academic freedom. Okay, where? Did you just make that up and you're saying it's yeah. part of the academic yeah. freedom? Are you? I don't yeah. know. But the argument that he gets down to relating to the statement is, well, all these academic freedomists, if we need a name for those people, I think he does come up with a term for them at some point that I, I just don't remember. Mm. They say things like, well, you know, for the past hundred years, uh, we were teaching that contagious diseases were caused by, and I love this, we once taught that certain contagious diseases stemmed from the presence of filth or the proximity of stagnant waters, when in fact, Mm -hmm. it was later discovered that they were caused by disease-carrying mosquitoes and fleas and by drinking infected water or milk. (laughs) Okay. I mean, okay, in a broad sense, yes. Sure. But also, those stagnant waters probably created mosquitoes. It, it goes back to the whole thing yeah. of like, okay, we're, we're talking about, cre- you know, there was a level of truth to the stagnant waters thing. Um, yeah. But in the same way that any anything observed has a level of truth. I also love the 1950s medicine. As far as you can observe. Them. I also like the 1950s medicine of don't drink infected water or milk. Keep yourself strong. Oh, it's just, it's just lovely. Smoke and Yes, sex. yes, have a, have a nice camel cigarette. Uh, but it's just that weird 1950s, you know, is science really science back then? Uh, probably not so much. But his argument is, well, in these areas, uh, we were wrong at one point, and so we've progressed, and now we, we used to teach that. Now we teach what we know to be actually correct. Mm-hmm. And he tries to apply that to this area of what I'll call philosophy, right, when we're talking about battling ideas about... Uh, you know, communism, capitalism, these various ways of ordering society, he tries to apply that same idea to philosophy, which I will say is not exactly as applicable as I think he wants it to be. No, because, I mean, philosophy is not... Well, (laughs) I don't want to get... Time to get Aaron back on. Philosophy is not science. Sure, sure. And, uh, you know, I think there are... There are many things we can say in philosophy are, are false because they're invalid or they've been invalidated. But I don't think you can, in the same way, say that, well, we need to teach one thing over the other because, yeah. you know, this week. Because there aren't, there aren't as many observed truths right. in philosophy. But remember, he is also here conflating teaching a, ver- a system of economics, like Keynesian economics, which is more of a science. He's conflating yeah. that with this idea about inculcating values of whether, Mm -hmm. you know, his idea of individualism, which is what he'll revert to, so he doesn't have to talk about what he actually means, versus collectivism, which is, in his mind, 
Keynesian economics. I still mm-hmm. love it. He thinks that's Keynesian economics is collectivism. I still, yep. I still tickles it me. Frankly, it, yep. it still just tickles well, me that that's all, his definition. All economics is collectivism, Cameron. Sure, sure. We're just going full. We on live in a it. society. But he has a shocking bit of honesty on this next page, where he says, "Quote." But at the same time, Christianity, or even the existence of God, in the opinion of some people, is not demonstrable. Better still, it is arguable whether or not it is demonstrable, and therefore the dissenter is entitled to take the line that since there is a conflicting opinion as to its demonstrability, it must be regarded as not demonstrable. That's a weird line for Buckley, the hardline Catholic fascist, to take. To seed the point that, well, we'll just stick with it not being demonstrable because, uh, you know... I, I don't think it is a weird line. I think it's consistent because, I mean, for, for Catholics, the existence of God is a matter of faith and therefore it's not demonstrable. Mm, I don't know. I did go to 12 years of Catholic school, but I couldn't tell you off the top of my head what right. they believe. Sure. But, well, I, I, my perception of it anyway is that there is at least a certain amount of faith that has to be involved in the in, in your perception of God. Sure. So but he c- maybe that's wrong. I'm not a Catholic. But then he, as you may may, sure, may be yes. able to tell from everything. But then he follows the point by falling flat on his nose uh, <laughs> and breaking his entire face, where he says, "Quote: Let us not pursue the point. Let us say that Christianity may not be the truth, but that in the eyes of Christians is at least the nearest thing to unrevealed and perhaps inapprehensible ultimate truth." Cool. So and- having been like, "Hey, this isn't necessarily <laughs> true," he's like, "But let's assume it is." Yeah, yeah. But that's not the point I was getting. The point I'm getting at is the next paragraph, where he says, "Quote: As for individualism, as expressed in economic, political, and social policy, it is not regarded as truth, as we have been using the term, even by the majority of its most ardent supporters. Even so, we are entitled, if we believe in it, to classify it as the best available philosophy to guide the legislator, the executive, and the judge." Individualism, we are entitled to say, is, if not truth, the nearest thing we have to truth. No closer thing to truth in the field of social relations having appeared on the horizon. So he said that... There's like five logical fallacies in that. Okay, yes, but also he has just said, okay, it's the same as Christianity, but unlike Christianity, I get to argue that it actually is truth here because... mm, Jingly keys, pay no attention to the words I just said a paragraph earlier. So annoying to me. So annoying to me that he just... Tap dances right past that. I mean, literally, you're looking at the page. It's a paragraph apart. They're right next yep. to each other. Completely yep. inconsistent arguments. Drives me nuts. Drives me so nuts that people think this guy is intelligent. Just fucking nightmarishly stupid. So he comes on making the argument. Well, so, you know, they teach that democracy is good at Yale. So they can't prove that that's the truth. So my individualism thing must be correct. Yay. Who cares? But then he makes the argument that... Quote, referring to President Seymour, quote, if he considered atheism evil and foolish, he would have needed only to utilize the same logic and the same powers he invoked against communism to banish it from the classroom. If he deemed Mm -hmm. socialism as evil or foolish as communism, he would have done the same. And there are two interesting things there to me. First, he's so close but not potato there uh, with everything that he's, he's realizing. But first, the whole thing about um, if he considered atheism evil, evil and foolish, he could invoke the same and banish him from the classroom. Yes, he did. And yeah. what does that tell you? What, you're, you're so close. What does that tell you about it? A, that his definition of atheism does not mean anything close to you know what the actual definition is. We know that because he has labeled a whole bunch of people who are just casually religious as atheists. But mm-hmm. second, I love the second sentence there, where Buckley, unlike everyone we have ever read, 
recognizes there is a difference between socialism and yep. communism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which nobody point. after him that we have ever looked into has bothered to acknowledge even exists. And That's that just... Good, yeah, no, it drove but, me nuts. It drove me so nuts. Because I... I well, you know, they, they, they all say... I mean, they all say it's it's a it's a stopping post on the way to communism. Right, so socialism but, is... is which, to be fair, is also the Marxist position. Right! But that's what I was going to get to. Why do they all say that? They say that because Marx said that. Yeah. Why do they... Wait a minute. They believe Marx? Wait, they don't believe Marx? What the fuck do they think? Do they think yeah, the guy was exactly. right or wrong? Right? Yeah, they want to take the negative from Marx and not the... Not sure, the it's exactly that same thing. I, but it's... I, I, think, I think we should just say, though, I mean, the reason, the reason Buckley's saying this is he kind of recognizes that atheism isn't as bad as... It's a very Catholic position in seeing things exclusively in black and white. Um, <laughs> he says, like, atheism may, may not be as bad, but it's still bad, and therefore it should be banned. But, like, you can make a, an argument that everything is a little bit bad. Like, well, capitalism and that's what... <laughs> is a little bit... And it might not be as bad as right. atheism, in your view, but... But does that mean we should ban capitalism as well? Or is capitalism exclusively good? And that's where we get to the stupidity of how he ends that subsection, where his argument to end the subsection is, well, if, President Seymour, you uh, believe that uh, communism is even the slightest bit bad, then you should ban it because, um, you know, the moral code that you subscribe to tells that you should abhor all that is bad. Mm Mm-hmm. And if you think it's even a little bit bad, then you should, of course, ban it, prevent it from being taught, blah, blah, blah. Well, the same, as you just said, is true of capitalism. Because no one, even, I don't think even Buckley would argue that there are no flaws with capitalism, that there are no mm-hmm. problems with it, that it doesn't result in inequitable outcomes. In which case, there's a little bit of bad there. And in that mm-hmm. case, Buckley, you should abhor capitalism because you should abhor all things that are in any degree bad. It's just logically applies to his argument, but doesn't have that external consistency that we're always looking for. So we get to the fourth and final subsection that we will be going over in today's uh, today's chapter, and this is the truth will out. Actually, not just the not the truth will out. He just says truth will out. And this section he begins by telling us, "Quote: Let truth and error do battle in the arena of ideas. Truth will vanquish. Let the student and the citizen witness the struggle. Let the struggle take place in their minds, and they will ally themselves with the truth." So you get an idea of what this subsection is about. It's the old argument, uh, you know, battle of ideas, put them against each other and the best ones will win, which we've seen have not been true and which Buckley will acknowledge here is not true because, you know, fascism rose in Italy and in Germany. So the truth didn't win out in those situations. Mm -hmm. And he says, quote, the school is conceived as an extension of the arena in which battle is done. Whereas, more properly, the teaching of a college is a practice field on which the gladiators of the future are taught to use their weapons, are briefed in the wiles and stratagems of the enemy, and are inspired with the virtue of their cause, in anticipation of the day when they will step forward and join in the struggle against error. And just that grandiose, bullshit way of viewing, learning things annoys the shit out of me because I I once believed that back when I was a right-wing shitbag, and I mm-hmm. can reach down into myself and I can remember how I thought I was arming myself with truth and it just makes me hate myself it makes me hate myself just a little bit more having remembered that I once felt that way oh it's so gross (laughs) I'm sorry but he points out here yes that Russia Italy Germany in those places the truth did not win out because no because it doesn't no necessarily 
Right, and that, that again, looking at his, pro- looking at the people who follow Buckley, who claim to think this is a good book, um, you know, you, you can't, you can't like Buckley if you think that we should have that battlefield of ideas. Mm-hmm. And the, the truth of it is, I don't think that any of those people, um, who the you know, college Republican groups who try and bring ship bags like Milo Yiannopoulos to campus and stuff, I don't think that they believe in academic freedom. I just think that Buckley is the only one who's been willing to be honest about it. Um, I think that they believe that, no, we should just have, uh, you know, we should have enforced attendance at the Milo speech that I bring to campus. That's what we should have on these college campuses. I think that's what they're really all about. But, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I don't really think that they believe in, in uh, any of that academic freedom. But then we get what I would call the three stages of right-wing excuses, explained to us by Buckley, where he says, quote, Both of these revolutions, to be sure, he's talking about the Nazis and uh, the fascists in Italy, were wrought Mm -hmm. by complex forces acting in complex ways. But it is nevertheless a tragic fact that truth did not triumph, and that this was not because the truth had not been made known. It was rather because, A, not enough people recognized the truth, B, those that did recognize it did not exert themselves sufficiently in its behalf, and C, many people saw the truth but were indifferent to it. Benedict, for five points, A, B, C, which one will you have? Oof, uh, I'm going to go uh, none of the above. <laughs> but really, I mean, those three little, little little pieces right there, that's really why the right thinks that no one likes their bullshit. Like, yeah. Well, it's because not enough people know it, or, uh, you know, people who did know, they're not working hard enough, and uh, all the people that did find out about it, you know, they just didn't do anything. They just didn't, they didn't come to my bullshit rally at the mm-hmm. college campus. It's, it's just the levels of excuses that you get. Yeah, and it's silly. I mean, I was trying to think of a better word for it, but it's, it's, <laughs> it is just, just silly. It is silly. But then, Benedict, we get the one thing, the one little thing in which, uh, you know, there's all these little pieces where I agree with Buckley. Um, and he points out that in current occupation Germany, 1951, right, the Germany was still under uh, military occupation, mm-hmm. um, that uh, they don't teach Nazi philosophy in schools. No. Um, and Buckley... Uh, Buckley says this is good well no um, here's the thing he says uh, I have heard I have heard no hoots and cries leveled at them for it unequivocally forbade blah 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 use of uh, in school text of Nazi philosophy blah 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 in the parenthetical or not the parenthetical in the footnote underneath that he says quote I am in hearty disagreement with this type of suppression as it will be made clear later when I seek to analyze the function of education and the function of the teacher so Mm. He wants Nazism taught. I, I should say, I'm not in agreement with Buckley. I'm in agreement with what he pretends to say, but then does not with that footnote. Because yeah. the, the paragraph, then, if you just read distances it. distances himself from in the footnote. The yeah. paragraph reads like he agrees with the fact that they don't teach Nazi philosophy in German schools. Then yeah. that footnote says, oh, I think they should be teaching like Nazi philosophy in Which, public schools. again, school. that's the opposite of what you said about communism. So, yeah. You're calling it suppression when it's for Nazis. Um, again, yeah, he, he probably would not agree that you should teach, uh, you know, read uh, the Communist Manifesto in public schools, uh, even if you were teaching that it was bad. He probably wouldn't. I, I don't know. Maybe we'll get that in the second half of this chapter. He says he's going to address that some. We'll see if he gets to it. I, I, I'm not too confident in what he's going to say. But then, to end out the chapter, the last thing he brings us to is the fact that our, our great Supreme Court, as recently as 1925, oh, Benedict, you know how great the Supreme Court was in 1925? Extremely. Back what we call the Lochner era, unanimously ruled 
that the state has the power, among others, over all schools to require that teachers shall be of good moral character and patriotic disposition. He's, he is so glad that the Supreme Court had said something like that because we'd know that he, wait a minute, he wants the government to control schools? What does he want? Damn it, I don't remember what he wants. Does he want the government to control schools or not? He's unclear. But what he what he's talking about there... He's unclear it, on all of this. He's unclear on a lot of things. What he's talking about there is a case called Pierce versus the Society of Sisters. Uh, this was a 1925 decision about an Oregon statute that required all children to attend public school. And, you know, it's not surprising that that statute was uh, very bigoted in its intentions, right? I think it was championed by, like, the Ku Klux Klan and stuff because they wanted to shut down Catholic schools and stuff. Um, that was their intent in, in making all kids go to public school uh, and not allowing these private schools. Um, but the passage in question that Buckley is referencing there is what we call dicta uh, in the, the law. It had nothing to do with the actual ruling. Um, it was just something that the, the justices said sort of in an offhand manner um, and can't be relied upon in, in later oh, arguments. Okay, well, that's dumb then. And the, this parag- or the sentence which he references actually starts with, no question is raised concerning the power of the state reasonably to regulate all schools. Oh, so what they're actually stating there is what's not in question in this suit. Um, so that's what that that part he referenced was about. But Benedict, we will, I will, as I always do, read always. the final paragraph of the portion we're going to be doing for today's show. And it is, quote, At any rate, our Supreme Court, like many of our legislatures, has shown greater discernment than the majority of our blue-ribbon educators by acknowledging that the most esteemed values, if they are to triumph, must have a helping hand at the educational letter. Something I'm sure he would backtrack on his compliments in just a few years when the Supreme Court started, you know, forcing integration and things like that. (laughs) Doing a civil right. I'm sure he wasn't as happy about the Supreme Court as soon as they started doing the civil rights. But Benedict, that is it for our review of the first half of William Frank Buckley's God and Man at Yale, Chapter 4. Oh my God, we are so tired of this book, aren't we? (laughs) Yes. We are so fucking tired of this book. Aren't we, folks? Um, So just before we finish up today, um, Benedict and I, we've been looking at possibilities to do for the next book that we're going to get into. And uh, I think we might have one. I'm waiting on my copy of it to show up so I can do a skim and uh, see if it's, it's, you know, good material for the show. Well, they have our time. I think it's going to be a good one, though. I think, yeah, I think the book, too. I don't want to say it yet. I don't want to say it yet. You're not jinx it. But I think I think it's going to be a good book, and I'm really excited. It, it's another radio host. I mean, come on. <laughs> Right-wing philosophy is shaped by radio hosts. Of course it um, always has been. <laughs> right? So I think, I think it's going to be a good time. I'm really excited to get into it. But thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. And remember, if you just can't get enough of us, remember to go over to patreon.com forward slash NYGBC. And I should mention, someone reached out and asked, um, I only charge uh, patrons for the episodes in which we do a book review chapter. So basically only twice a month do you get charged uh, on the Patreon account. So it's $2 an episode, but really it's only typically $4 a month, six on those rare, rare months where we do three chapters in a month. Um, for as little as $2 an episode, for patron-only episodes, shout-outs on the show, early release of our episodes, and more. And as always, we have to give a shout-out to our wonderful and amazing patrons, Chris Palmer, Bad Bible Stitches, Ellie Bartlett. I gotta come up with a new rhythm for this now. I yeah. had a rhythm for a long time because we had the same patrons for a long time, and now, now I'm, throwing it off. It up. I'm throwing off. Lisa, Tarn Somerville Fletcher, Benjamin Carlisle, Dexter, Allison, C. David, Megan Ruth, Glowrung the Deceiver, Big Easy Blasphemy, Becky Scott Fairley, Stephen and Cindy Dimmick, 
AJ Brantley, Taru Takanen, Skeptical Seventh, and Balls Watterson, and George Soros. Thank you all, as always, for being our patrons. That's it for this week's show. Till next time, that's not annoy. This is annoy. Goodbye. Goodbye. Podcast is a production of Kevin and Benedict Productions. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. Music for this podcast is by Silverman Sound Studios. Find out more at silvermansound.com. Gives me a chance to sip my Amazon brand silver energy drink. Okay. Mm. Look at you. That's fun. I made a big mistake um, like, uh, I don't know, a week ago or so, maybe two weeks. I purchased energy drinks because Dwayne The Rock Johnson mm. <laughs> told me they were good. Okay. <laughs> As it turns out, Dwayne The Rock Johnson is not someone to be relied upon for recommendations of energy drinks. That's not good. Um, tasted like raw garbage. Okay. Just bad. Just Are they bad. his energy drinks? Or? I don't know. It's this Zoa brand, and like mm. I... I think maybe he's he's probably an investor or something. Uh, you know, I shouldn't even say that. He's probably just a spokesperson because that's how all these deals work. Yeah. But um, I thought, come on, The Rock wouldn't push me into something that tastes like total crap, would he? <sighs> and uh, and uh, as it turns yeah. out, it turns out The Rock would. I don't think The Rock has ever drank an energy drink in his life. Really? I think he probably has. No, just the blood of his enemies. That's all he drinks. <laughs> blood of his enemies.